From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. John Rood is out as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. He'll leave his job by the end of the month. Defense News reports Rood doesn't have a deputy because Assistant Secretary of Defense for, Planet, uh, for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities, James Anderson, currently performs the deputy's duties. The Senate confirmed Rood in January of 2018. The Navy wants to use night court savings methods to save $40 billion over the next five years. Acting Secretary Thomas Modley says the Navy's, quote, facing three critical pressurizing mandates. USNI News reports the Navy plans to start with a stem-to-stern review to find $8 billion in savings this year. Federal employees who settle with their agencies can expect the agreements to last only for a, quote, reasonable time. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit says settlement agreements with no date attached can be considered void after a reasonable time has passed. GovExec reports any federal employees who have settlement agreements could see agencies challenge their terms. The Army will restructure its modernization efforts to drive the branch's six modernization priorities. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy and Chief of Staff General James McConville detailed the transformation efforts at a fireside chat the Center for a New American Security hosted. Between our night court efforts, which were the basically zero-based budgeting reviews, we were in, we've gone through our second evolution. We've got north of $45 billion across the fit-up that we moved against these priorities. A lot of energy. You'll see about half of the procurement dollars against new capabilities by the middle of this fit-up. We're just not talking about new equipment. You know, we're talking about new a new, way to, uh, a new way we're going to fight. We're talking about new organizations. We're talking about certainly modernization priorities. We're also talking about how we manage people in the 21st century. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program has a set of standards now for contractors doing business with the Defense Department. Companies will need to start implementing these practices soon because the rollout should be completely finished by 2026. Bob Bigman is founder of 2B Secure and former Chief Information Security Officer, the Central Intelligence Agency. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Um, what do you see in all of this for the companies who are saying, all right, we have a new set of uh, rigorous compliant, uh, to, uh, requirements to comply comply with. What do they do to start here, Bob? Yeah, so the very first thing is to uh, uh, start getting serious uh, yesterday mm -hmm. because uh, a lot of the companies I had worked with uh, doing DFAR 1702 kind of certification, the self-certification process, yeah. were like a little liberal in interpreting the uh, the 171 requirements. Yeah, everything's uh, <laughs> fine. We're doing fine. We're doing okay. Right? Yeah, don't look under here. Uh -huh. uh, well, now it's a certification. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot different. When DOD does a certification, those are real auditors asking real questions and looking under the covers and making sure you have things. So if I'm a company, the first thing I have to do is get out the you know, 171 list of requirements, look at level three probably if mm -hmm. you're processing um, sensitive uh, but unclassified, uh, look at level three and make sure you are doing all those, okay? Um, and frankly, most are not. Mm -hmm. um, so make sure you're doing all those. And the other part is you have to start documenting 
both the processes and procedures and your, your uh, security uh, continual monitoring processes. It's not just that you have tools in place and you kind of do it. Mm -hmm. You have to show how you do it in a deliberative and consistent uh, manner. Is this going to be a heavy lift for companies? It sounds like if they're not doing these things now, at, at level three out of five, that's fairly high up on the list. Yeah, so I'll give you two examples. So I, I worked with one company who, frankly, didn't even process uh, sensitive building classified, but was a DOD contractor. Mm -hmm. They were fully DFARS compliant. They. Uh, legitimately went through every one of the requirements, built the systems, put in the processes in place. For them, it won't be a big lift. Right. However, I worked with other companies, and you know, not so strict in their interpretation, didn't buy all the right tools, certainly didn't document all the processes. Yeah, that's, that's gonna take time, people, money, energy. Mm -hmm. Is there a dramatic difference between, say, level one and level three, level three and level five? If a company aspires to one level, is it practical for them to consider, well, maybe we build up to that level of compliance and satisfy ourselves with going after work at a lower level for right. now? Right, so this is the big guesswork right now. Mm -hmm. It depends on where these, the actual contracts, the RFIs and the RFPs will actually gauge what level they need. Um, the big jumps I see are to three, okay, because that's where you really have to do all the um, 171 controls, mm -hmm. and you have to have the documented processes. Four is a lot of additional practices. Mm -hmm. um, you have to get better at threat hunting, you have to get better at DLP data loss protection, and you have to get better at inside monitoring. Um, you should already have those capabilities in place at three, so it's a matter of tuning them. Uh, it's three, to me, it seems like the big lift. Five is, I mean, I don't have any client in private or public who's doing five. Five is a is really a big a big mm -hmm. challenge. What's going to be the biggest gap? Do you think between where companies are and where they're going to need to be to get the certifications they want? Uh, two areas. Uh, number one, um, actually doing the proper malware prevention and detection and continual monitoring of their network. Um, no, no one, frankly, does that really well. Mm -hmm. And number two documenting repeatable processes for how they secure their network and how they make changes to the IT network. Now, when you say nobody does that well, is it because they're not paying enough attention? Is it because the tools don't exist yet to be able to do it well, and that demand may drive that at some point in the future? Some other reason? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. It's, mm. it's primarily the fact that they don't, frankly, monitor the right things in the right way and spend mostly the money, but really the resources, to truly understand what their network consists of, what assets are on their network and what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. that, that takes thought, time, you can't just buy it out of a box or even buy it as a service. You need to really think through how you're going to do that um, and only a few organizations do that well. The wrinkle here I think with the CMMC program is that primes are going to need to be able to certify that their subs all the way through the supply chain are also compliant to that level. What's the potential biggest hiccup there in your view? Well, so the way it works is they've made a slight change and now that it was all, all subs, now it's really focusing on the subs who process uh, the controlled uh, un unclassified inform sensitive in uh, information, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what they might do is just change how they control what, who gets what information, right? Who needs to see what information? Uh, but for those who do process, 
uh, yeah, they may have to you know, make sure, they, they will have to certify that their subs are in fact compliant mm -hmm. uh, and have been certified, and the word, key word is certified. So that's an, additional, that's an additional lift. We have just a few seconds left, but what it sounds like is this is a new infrastructure that companies are going to have to be aware of, not just at the certification prog uh, process, but on an ongoing basis. Am I reading that right? It's, it's the ongoing basis that is one of the biggest changes here. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just not a self-assessment one time, you write a letter that we did well. It's to spend the time, the money, uh, and the resources to continually implement uh, a really strong cybersecurity program. That I agree, that is a big, big difference. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for coming sure. on. It's great to have you as Thank always. Thank you. Up next, the government's role in the innovative ecosystem. Straight ahead on Government Matters, is it time for the government to get out of the venture capital business? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Air Force's AFWORKS program funds tech startups seeking to develop military weapons. The program matches funds starting at $3 million in an effort to encourage innovation. Eric Lofgren's a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, writing about programs like AFWORKS and the role the federal government should play in innovation in defense news. Eric, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. Is AFWORKS kind of the textbook example of this, or are there other organizations where it's happening better, happening differently? and so on. So AFWORKS isn't really the textbook example. Uh, most of the revenue from AFWORKS actually comes in as, you know, it, the contracts come in as revenue to the firms mm -hmm. themselves. So when we're talking about, you know, the venture capital kind of initiatives that the department is doing and across government, AFWORKS, they do have some tech accelerators, but for the most part, it comes in as revenue. You'll see a better example of that is, for example, Incutel, which has been around for nearly two decades, mm -hmm. but that is kind of like the venture arm of the intelligence agencies. Uh, the Army also has a venture initiative, and there's th some others um, scattered throughout. But so one of the issues that we're talking about is that uh, we hear from the venture community and industry, especially the non-traditionals, that uh, they want government to make big bets, but they don't want them to play VC, the role of venture capital. And by that, what they really mean is uh, provide equity financing rather than contracts that come in as revenue. Mm -hmm. And across the department, there's not a lot of, of the, the venture style investing going on. And so that was some of the, the clarification and distinction. So you write in this piece in Defense News, uh, you pose this I think as a rhetorical question, but I'm curious to your thoughts about it. If the Pentagon organically grows startups with contracts, then VCs are presented with a problem. Why would startups need them? After all, the Pentagon's long covered all development costs ahead of product launch. What's the answer to that rhetorical question in your view, Eric? Oh, well, I'm all for the uh, government innovating and, and trying out new things and experimenting. And we've seen a, a growth of these, in, what they call innovation mm -hmm. hubs. And I recommend you to Anne Loren's kind of innovation ecosystem chart. But they're kind of sitting in between the science and technology labs and, and other firms with innovative technologies and the program executive offices who have the money and the mission. And they're trying to transition that, that uh, technology. Now, the government, yes, they, they tend to have uh, fun provided much, most of the funding for mm -hmm. development ahead of product launch. So where does the VC community kind of come in if government can organically grow uh, 
the the companies themselves and so that was what kind of like got me pushing on this topic you know what do what what are they really saying when they say government should make big bets they should scale companies which implies picking winners and losers mm -hmm. but they should not play VC and I think there's a there's a bigger story than just whether the government should do equity financing or not. So one of the one of the issues you present as a possible problem in this piece is you write the unique requirements and sales motions of government, the acquisition cycle is something we'll get to if we have time, means the dual-use companies might not be efficient. That sounds to me like what you just suggested, which is if the government is pumping this money in for potential DOD results, that might preclude that company from getting heavily involved in the commercial market, which is kind of on the other side of the fence, that's what the Pentagon is saying. We want to try to use as much commercial technology as we possibly can. Yeah, and this was an argument from Catherine Boyle at uh, General Catalyst, and she was saying at a Defense News Roundtable essentially uh, exactly what what you were saying there, that uh, you know the venture community, they want to come in and they they want to fund something on the front end but they need to kind of have some some kind of confidence that the government will start scaling these guys and what 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 we're seeing here is that uh we need to get the flywheel started mm -hmm. because one of the problems is government or a lot of the venture community has been skeptical of doing pure defense plays because these startups, they need to be focused. Mm -hmm. And if they're a small company, the unique defense, the motions of the defense sales uh, kind of world kind of means it's hard to go after commercial and government at the same time when you're a small organization. You need to kind of focus. And that was Catherine Boyle's point. And that sales motions term, I think, is really interesting. I like it a lot because it says in a very diplomatic way, it takes too long to suit a venture capitalist's business cycle for a company to go from uh, idea to prototype to production to cashing a check from the government compared to what that VC company can do in the private sector at turning the same cycle. Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you, you know, the venture community, there's plenty of private money out there. Interest rates are very low. The money will flow into where there is, uh, you know, a good buyer. There's a good market opportunity to grow and see good talent and good products be successful. And the government has only had, um, at least in the defense business, two real like billion dollar firms kind of come out in the last 30 years. And that's not providing that enticing kind of carrot for the venture community mm -hmm. to get in. But if the government um, can kind of get out of what, what, what really is coming out here, and we're starting to hear more about this, and this is something that I like to bang my drum on a lot, is that the budget cycle is really a problematic when you have to program funds two, three, five years in advance. So you have to know what was going to be successful years in advance in order for funds to be there on time so that the small companies can get the cash flow and stay alive. And if we kind of have this budget flexibility, what Trey Stevens, for example, at Founders Fund was saying, out of cycle funding in the year of execution, if we can get that going, then we can start transferring some of these technologies and the venture capital will start flowing into the, into the area organically. Eric, thanks very much as always for coming on. Up next, modernizing digital services. Straight ahead on Government Matters, two groups on the edge of the modernization revolution. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The United States Digital Service is working to improve processes across government and save the government money. Code for America is an important part of that work, too. Jen Palka is founder and executive director at Code for America. Mishu Tasneem is executive director of the U.S. Digital Service at the Department of Health and Human Services. Ladies, thanks very much for coming on. Jen, I'll start with you. How does all of this work together in the ecosystem? How do organizations like Code for America interact with agencies and the government as a whole? Well, Code for America and the United States Digital Service and a bunch of other groups like 18F and groups that are now started in bunches of federal agencies and state agencies are all sort of playing from the same playbook, mm -hmm. which is let's make government work better for people in a digital age. Let's look at the problems that people using government services face through their eyes and build a government that works for them. And so we do it with states and municipalities. Um, we also do it with the federal government, and in fact, we're going to bring everyone together who believes in this vision of government working better to, together here in Arlington uh, on March 11th and through, thir through 13th. We'll talk about that in yeah. a moment. Mishu, how does this manifest itself at the agency level, the work that Jen and her colleagues are doing? Yeah, so we basically take that same playbook and make sure that everybody's bought into the execution piece of it, mm -hmm. so working with our agency partners, introducing concepts like human-centered design and design with the users, not for the users, from a um, pedestal, um, changing how procurement works. That's a really big issue in the government. Um, issues like that are things that we, like the execution is really where the details happen. So. What have been the biggest challenges procurement-wise? Because I, I, I think overall people are really receptive to the idea of changing the, the design culture. The procurement culture strikes me as maybe the tougher nut to crack. That, that one is pretty tough. We've definitely tried quite a few different um, permutations of how we can change procurement. Um, design challenges are a big thing, which um, taking that concept of show us, don't tell us. Mm -hmm. um, don't just write this like wonderful 50-page document, and then when you, you know, kickoff starts and you don't have the staff or you can't perform. Um, we prefer people showing us, giving us the code so that we can actually run it and see like that they can actually build the products we're at looking for. How have you seen, Jen, the, the cultural, I guess, resistance is an, an unfortunate word to use, but how has that changed in the time since USDS stood up to today? Yeah. The, there's, there is a more of a receptivity today, I think, to the ideas of, of kind of modernizing design. Absolutely. I think, and it's driven in part by frustration and an increased willingness of people in government to say the status quo doesn't work the way it should. Mm -hmm. So I started Code for America 10 years ago now. We've been on this journey. I, I took a year off and came and worked in federal government. I saw the exact same mix of desire to serve the public by amazing public servants and frustration with the ways that we have interpreted things like procurement uh, regulation. There's plenty in the FAR that you can use to do an agile, modular, user-centered procurement, um, but people have been told for so long, you must do it this way. What's happening though is they're saying, but when we do it that way, we spend way more money than we should mm -hmm. and it doesn't get the outcome that we intended. A great example of that that, that speaks to your earlier question about um, the feds and the states and the counties as it really relates to the American people getting what they need is enrollment and social safety benefits, mm -hmm. SNAP, Medicaid. You know, the feds are paying 90% of these IT, IT systems and they're quite expensive but you have very low enrollment rates, you have real difficulties, really for the people who in fact need those services the most. Mm -hmm. We're putting the biggest burden on the people who have the least ability to get through a government 
interaction. And it strikes me that this is a, a fortunate confluence of events because all of these challenges that the customer is having, the customer sitting there going, this stinks. The provider inside the government's going, I hate that we have to do this, yeah. make people go through these things. And now this technology come, becomes available and the people like you, Mishu, who are able to do it are available and willing to do it. Am I reading it the right way, do you think? Yeah. Absolutely. And what I think I see more and more over the 10 years, and certainly more this year than ever before, is people saying, yes, we know that the status quo has a lot of problems, mm -hmm. but now we know there's another model. Yeah. We've seen it. It's happening over at Health and Human Services, a great example of this, where they're not just delivering a different kind of technology, it's also a different design and mm -hmm. a different way that you get to that design. But it's also that they're working with the policy people. And that's so important. We really need the policy people and the delivery people working together from the beginning, not in separate silos, not with policy here, and then they sort of throw it over the fence to delivery people. And if you, you know, again, to come to the summit, if you come there, that's what you'll see is examples of this that inspire everyone else. And they go, well, we can do it that way too. All right, you trumped my question. Sorry. With, no, that's okay. We have about a minute left. That, but that's what I wanted to know is what's the takeaway? What does somebody leave that summit with and go back to her agency mm -hmm. and say, I've got this new information or technique or whatever to contribute? Well, you're going to see people like Mishu's colleagues showing what they did to work with policymakers and deliver something where the regulators said, this is the best regulations I've ever written in my life and better outcomes. You're going to hear that from people at Interior and DOD and the VA and a bunch of different states. And you're going to say, okay, uh, I now have a playbook that I can take back and tell people, look, this is long, hard work, but we've got the talent, we've got the, uh, the will, the political will, and we're going to do this. Mishu and Jen, thanks both very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, tune in or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. The West Conference celebrates 30 years of bringing military and industry leadership together this year. It features uniformed and civilian leadership and three engagement theaters covering a lot of different topics. It is back at the San Diego Convention Center this year, March 2nd and 3rd. You can get more information and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.